Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. Joining me this week is commissioning editor Thea Lenadutsi. I shall refrain entirely from using joke titles like token northerner, pronunciation guru or foodie to describe her. You please about that. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. I think we've achieved that very nicely. <laughs> uh, coming up on the show today, we have a look at the history of English violence. Our history editor, David Horsepool, has written a startling cover piece on all of the various ways English people historically have found to beat each other up. We shall be calling him out in the studio shortly. We should also consider the forgotten poet of modernism, Basil Bunting, who feuded with T.S. Eliot and is now finally published by Faber. Mark Hutchinson makes the case for Bunting with us. And keeping in the poetic vein, we shall discuss a new collection of Emily Dickinson poems gathered together in the fashion she herself would have chosen. There will be pauses, dashes, concentrated distillations and the thoughts of Fiona Green to help us understand them. Finally, many of us know Robert Conquest, the sterling historian of Stalin's Russia. But in this poetry special of the TLS this week, we have the opportunity to consider his poetry. To close the show, we have a recording of him reading in 1960. So, is a propensity to violence, to cudgelings, stabbings, brawlings and the like, peculiarly English. James Sharp has written a history of violence in England entitled A Fiery and Furious People, and in an act of shameless self-commissioning, our history editor David Horsepool has reviewed it. At one level, the story is one of shrinking violence, a gradual process of civilization within English society. The book certainly uncovers some startling statistics about medieval England. That foreign country had a homicide rate of 20 per 100,000 population. In today's England, the figure is 1.15. The southern counties in the Middle Ages were more dangerous than modern Mexico and four times more dangerous than the United States today. And while Oxford has always been known to many as a wild, unseemly place, it is perhaps surprising to find that studying there in the 1340s, according to David, sounds like undertaking a tour of duty in a particularly hot war zone. Indeed, murder rates there peaked at 120 per 100,000, higher than Caracas or San Pedro, Honduras, currently the two most violent cities in the world not at war. So what makes violence English? Why is it better now? And what about the Welsh? Are all questions <laughs> to be answered by David Horsepool, who joins Thea and me now. Hello. Hi, David. So medieval England... We should probably start there. Why was it such a war zone? One of the reasons was because so many people were armed and uh, if you've all got sticks and knives and bows and arrows and things like that, then resorting to violence can result in pretty uh, severe effects. So that's one reason, I would say. Another is that there wasn't a police force, so you wouldn't um, 
be detected when um, committing these acts of violence so regularly as you would in, in later times. And thirdly, I think that there was, in a sense, a culture of violence. It was a world in which people did resort more readily to violence than they do now. It was just more acceptable. And life was cheaper, presumably. In the way you see in certain countries in the world, now, if you've lost four kids uh, at childbirth and mortality rate's incredibly high, presumably the act of killing someone carries yes. less significance. In general, you, you would have thought so, but people still were as sad about losing people as they are today. Um, particularly, I mean, I think we think of the very high rates of child mortality as meaning that children were probably less valued then than now. But that's not necessarily true. You can see great outpourings of of grief and horror at, at the loss of children and whipping up of um, offence if people are accused of murdering children. Um, and particularly, for example, uh, the famous cases where the deaths of children were used to whip up a, a lot of anger against the Jewish population of, say, Norwich. That also happened. Uh, so it did matter. This it did matter. I mean, the reason the princes in the tower are cause celebre even at the the time that they disappeared was because they not just because they were royal, but because they were children. You know, in the fifteenth century. You mentioned as well that this relates to a period when the population was armed. When was when was the British population disarmed? It, again, it seems to be a matter of culture more than law, that people stopped carrying round uh, weapons, beginning in the 18th century, really, because up until the 17th century, uh, people at the top of society still, uh, men wore swords, for example, uh, and so the sort of high watermark of duelling is kind of 18th century, 17th, 18th century. And the argument that James Sharp makes is that this had a sort of trickle-down effect, that people at the top were armed and therefore people lower down society had other forms of uh, armament and that as the the gents gave them up, so did their social inferiors. And that you can observe this in the instances of fistfights, basically getting more common hmm. later on and actually that's also even true today uh, although we suffer uh, we're told a sort of epidemic of knife crime in london for example uh you know it's it's nothing by comparison to what it was like in 15th century london i remember remarking some time ago that in the peasants revolt 1381 that was stopped uh, sort of stopped in its tracks as a result of a, a knifing which was committed by the mayor of london you know our, our mayor of london would speak out against knife crime their mayor of london was armed with a knife which actually you can still see i think it's in the fishmongers hall the knife that william Woolworth used to to knife what tyler there's a there's an argument in, in in the book which is the sort of the weber argument that authorities got their act together mm. the author and you talk about a monopoly of violence for the state is so yeah. anyone who was acting in a brutal or violent fashion by about presumably 16 17 1800 were officers of the state and they were they were inquiring after people who committed crimes and they were punishing them with violence is that a move that you do buy as an argument that the yeah. violence goes into the government away from the people uh, well i think they they became more efficient at it in some senses i mean uh, from the norman conquest onwards you could 
suffer capital punishment for murder, for example, whereas before that there were uh, there was blood money under Anglo-Saxon oh, yeah. law code, which probably led to higher rates of detection because if if you could pay someone off, then you were more likely to admit it to sort of get it off off the books. I want to say Vergeld or something like that. Vergeld is exactly what it was called. Yes, blood money. The real difference was that with the introduction of what became known as the bloody code, the 18th century law code, it was a sort of overkill. Uh, uh, There was so much capital punishment for almost anything that things like murder or uh, arms uh, assault you'd also fall foul of it, but you'd also be hanged uh, famously for, you know, for, as well to be hanged for a sheep as a lamb kind yeah. of idea. So if you've got the state capable and willing to use that level of violence, it does, one imagine, give perpetrators second thoughts. And that, and that coincided um, with the, the kind of the growth of the printing press. So people were presumably much more aware of, of the likelihood of them being caught and then punished and what would happen to them if they did. So that's the argument for for deterrent. Yes, but I think that in in popular circles, the the, the kind of spread of, in oral terms, there there were popular ballads about murder and mayhem from very, very early on. So the idea that these things went on and that you could fall foul of the law was always around... But there were also, another thing to consider is that there were also easier ways of getting out of accusations in the Middle Ages. I talk about Sharp discusses uh, benefit of clergy, which meant that you could get out of these accusations to some extent if you were able to prove that you were a member of the clergy, which actually boiled down to being able to say a prayer, be able to write your name. Didn't Ben Johnson get away from a murder charge I think he did. As, as a result of yes. as a result of that? That's exactly right. Yeah. And also that if they couldn't find the culpable party, they would just sort of invent a, a fictional character. Yes, to I love that. I love that. Yeah. And they just called them. What did they, they call them? Uh, sort of Benjamin Card, or uh, if it was a, a, a wool card, or Jack Staff, or something like that. I was reminded when reading about that, that goes back a very long way, that kind of uh, way of solving a problem. Because obviously society likes to have someone to blame, even if it's a kind of story. And in ancient Athens they did that. They, uh, If someone died because a roof tile fell on their head, the roof tile would be found and taken beyond the bounds of the city and cast out as a way of kind of... Getting rid of the curse. Yeah. yeah. Wouldn't do it again, would it? Wouldn't do it again. <laughs> it did that. The book is not comparative, but there are a couple of comparative points you kind of tease out towards the end. Um, first, I sort of mentioned at the beginning, are there differences, do you think, within the English character set against, say, the Scottish or the Welsh? This is very clearly not a, uh, a book about British violence. It's about no. English violence. The short answer is I just don't know. I know that we used to have aggregated... Uh, crime statistics in a way that made it quite difficult to work work it out uh, in, in modern times, uh, whether the, the kind of rates of violence in England were higher than Scotland or vice versa. So it is quite difficult to, to know the answer to that question. And of course, people cross borders, don't they, in a very easy way. So I, I think it's, it's probably quite difficult to know whether there's something particularly exceptional about English as against Welsh or Scottish. Although one thing I do make reference to in the context of football hooliganism is a very recent example. You were there, weren't you? 
I was there, delightfully peaceful match between England and Wales. Uh, I have some Welsh ancestry as well as English, so I was kind of right in the middle. And it was uh, we were a bit worried about going because of the, the, the news of um, violence in previous matches, but actually it was one of the most uh, paid and sort of great, uh, good spirit, both on and off the pitch, interestingly enough. But previously, English fans had been shown to be violent in France and Welsh and Northern Irish there weren't any Scottish fans there uh, Welsh and Northern Irish fans had not so that was a difference which is difficult to explain again that may be cultural to the culture of English football and the way that has grown up but very difficult to explain those kind of things presumably verbal violence played quite quite a significant role in those in those football matches though so and I wonder where yes. where verbal violence fits into uh, Sharp's book. Well, it's a very interesting part of his book because initially, when I got to, I mean, it's a big book, and when I got to the section, it's you know seven hundred odd pages. I got to the section on verbal violence. I started out thinking, do we really need this? You've got quite a lot of people really hitting each other to deal with. But actually, he makes a very good case that there's a very there's a continuum between verbal and uh, what we might call actual physical violence, particularly in the past that. And he, he illustrates this with the remark that sticks and stones may break my bones proverb is a very late one. It's first attested from 1894, he says. And he, he claims that the Tudors and Stuarts just wouldn't understand the idea that there was any difference between traducing someone's reputation or cursing them or all these sorts of things and actually going at them physically. And they would have equal kind of punishment. The, the sorts of punishments that they had quite interestingly there's a stuff there's stuff about popular punishments and sort of mob rule the, the caravari or the skimmingtons called dragging someone out of their house taking them around the village throwing them in the, um, into a ditch or something like that and that starts out as something that happened to women who were accused of being scolds and gossips and all those sorts of things but actually later on sort of around the 18th century it starts to be meted out by popular acclaim to men who are accused of beating their wives so there's a kind of change in the way that verbal violence is dealt with and dealt out that's really it sounds like a fascinating book it's a really interesting piece and just the comparative nature of it even historically even if it doesn't go wider than that i think it makes it very interesting indeed david thank you so much for thank joining you. us and uh, uh, for writing the piece great piece of self-commissioning there by the way shamelessly I, I, so i think stig i made you an offer you couldn't refuse yeah. so, uh, <laughs> well i'm very glad you did before we move on, I should say, if you have the chance uh, and you want to comment on the show, you can go to iTunes and reviewers there and leave uh, positive or at least non-swear, non-swear, non-sweary. Yes, non-violent. Non-violent uh, comments and we will read out <laughs> the best ones. So go to iTunes and reviewers. But we will move on and enact the process of civilization ourselves and turn our minds to poetry, specifically the undervalued work of Basil Bunting. Born in 1900, he became enmeshed in the post-war world of modernist intellectuals. Championed by Pound, but continually dismissed by Eliot, Bunting's early and middle career was characterised by frustration and lack of success. In the 1950s and 60s, he found himself as an underpaid local journalist in Newcastle, and then around 1965, he began, on his train to and from work, compiling what became one of the greatest poems of the 20th century, the five-part work named after the Quaker meeting house of his childhood, 
Brig Flats. Mark Hutchison has reviewed the poems of Basil Bunting, published in a pleasing irony by Faber, and in his rather brilliant, engaged piece, he makes the case again for Bunting, the great modernist poet. Mark joins Thea and me now. Hi, Mark. Yeah, I'm here. Lovely. We shall take the career in stages, but first, and you may not agree with me, do you feel that Bunting needs rescuing as a great poet in the popular imagination? I was struck as we were preparing this piece for publication, I talked to people, including academics, professional literary people, and I was really struck by how neglected he had become. Do you think that's a fair assessment of where he is in, in, in the, the canon and the imagination? To be honest, I don't really know. You know, I live in France and I've lived here for a long time. So I'm a little bit out of touch with, with people's reading habits. For someone of my generation who read Bunting for the first time in the middle to the late 70s, the idea that he should need rescuing is 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 just um, unthinkable, really. I mean, he's a brick flats is a modern classic. But let's let's try and do a bit of chronology because I, I mean, one of the functions we can perform with this podcast and indeed your lovely piece is to is to talk people through the the career of ba- Basil Bunting, which culminates in many ways with brick flats. I mean, at the beginning of his career, he's moving in all the right circles. Uh, you know, he's championed by. Pound, although Eliot appears to be not that interested in him. And it kind of culminates this first stage in the continued rejection of his book Caveat Emptor. What sort well, of poetry was he writing there? What, what, what was happening to him? There's two things here. I mean, as they say in the piece, he, sends, he submits his work twice to Eliot in those early days, once in 1930 and then once in 1935. But what he sends him in 1930 is just a little chat book. Uh, it's a small little, a tiny book that he printed privately with a printer pound used in Milan. Expensive sort of rarity in, um, amongst bibliophiles because it was about a couple of hundred copies or something. So that Eliot turned that down um, is not necessarily all that surprising. But And, and if you remember in, in the piece I quote from that letter, you know, Eliot is quite, you know, seems to be quite warm at that stage. You know, he's saying, you know, um, unfortunately we've already taken on um, a couple of other books of the same sort of length, and um, but I like the Vion very much. So he's not, you know, it's sort of fairly encouraging. But you know, he... that was 1930. You've got to remember what Eliot was doing in 1930. 1930, he brought out, you know, Faber and Faber had only just become Faber and Faber. They were moving very gingerly. You know, they didn't want to ruin the publishing house before it had sort of launched its poetry list. You know, they were dithering about um, whether or not they were going to do an English edition of Joyce's Ulysses at that time, and um, they dithered about it so much that Joyce called them feebler and fumbler, you know. <laughs> and in the end, they lost it to the bodily head. So he, he published Auden's first book in 1930, and he also published a book by a poet who's completely forgotten about now called Joseph MacLeod, um, who was another protege of Pan's. He published a book called the, a long poem called The Ecliptic, which was reprinted recently by a small press in the States. Anyway, so what I'm saying is that, that, that he initially rejects Pound at 1930 is probably part of, you know, he's setting up this Faber poetry list and he doesn't want to take too much on board that he's going to have a hard time selling. The caveat emptor type script is a bit different because it's a, it's a much bigger collection. It's five years later. And as I say in the piece, you know, you have these letters, you have these remarks in, 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 in Eliot's letters, most of them are in 1932, um, where, you, where you see that Eliot is sort of not quite convinced. He thinks he seems to think that, uh, like he thought with a lot of people at the time, they were being too influenced by his friend um, Ezra Pound. Yeah. Part of the reason for that, there's an interesting little anecdote here that, that Bunting himself mentioned later in life. When he, worked, when he first met Eliot at the sort of Faber offices, which was 
apparently in 1925, because dates in Bunting are very slippery. But Eliot sort of was very nice to him and sort of recommended that he go away and read Dante. And Bunting didn't tell him that he'd already read Dante. He'd already discovered Dante all by himself. Uh, so I think there was a sort of misunderstanding. I think that Eliot always saw Bunting as a protege of Pound's, as a sort of who'd been moulded by Pound. He didn't realise the extent to which Bunting had already found his way to the same kind of modernist conclusions that, that Eliot and Pound had found their own individual. Do you see what I'm saying? Bunting took a bit of a strange approach to it in the end. I mean, having sort of been uh, pushed back a few times by Eliot, he did also take a mm. few swipes at him. It's very, he's, he has a very conflicted relationship, but, that, that, but the, the, the swipes against Eliot come, come in much later, mostly from conversation and remarks in the, uh, in the 60s. I mean, for instance... In the 60s, he's telling his friend Dennis Gocher that Eliot is actually a really a rather minor poet, that he has a cloth ear, that the, 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 the four quartets, the, the musically and rhythmically, is all very tumty-tum. You know, but, if you, but at the same time, that's in the 60s. In 1947, you know, when he first read the four, four quartets, he writes a, a letter to his close friend, uh, the, the American poet, Louis Zukowski, telling him how impressed he is with them. Mm, he's a so bit he's, of a bundle of contradictions, really. Um, when you look at the pattern of their relations, you, you, it, it's perfectly understandable that he should have had these very conflicted feelings towards Eliot because he obviously uh, respected and admired him enormously. And Bunting was a, you know, a fiercely critical. When you think how critical Bunting was of other people, you can't imagine how critical he must have been of himself. And you, you, you mentioned there how, um, in relation to Eliot's cloth ear, how music, music was very important to, to Bunting and to an understanding of his poetry. Yes, and I'm not suggesting for a moment, I'm just saying that Bunting was suggesting later in yes. life that he had a cloth ear. Eliot clearly did not have a cloth ear, but, but he's not, you know, he's not engaged in the kind of, you know, immensely elaborate music that the, 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 the Bunting is engaged in. It's very elaborate, at the same time, it's, it's, it's very simple. You know, his language is basically uh, very simple, and that's one of the, the great achievements of, of, of Brig Flats, as I say. Well, let, let's, talk, let's talk a bit about Brig Flats, because um, it is a poem that is sort of sui generis. It's an account of a childhood love set against the history of Northumbria. In the review, you call it Bunting's Jericho moment, the great trumpet blast of its opening line, heralding the end of nearly 30 years of self-incarceration. It's his moment where he's had a, a life and a career, a poetic career of kind of curious unsuccess up to the 60s, mid-60s, and then yet. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. 
Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. He produces this extraordinary this, poem. This extraordinary yeah. poem. What makes it extraordinary uh, in your view, Mark? Well, it's the thing I was saying. It's about the, the nature of that. It's 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 very. Uh, there's nothing you know. There's no bookishness that you find. There's none. None of the bookishness. None of the sort of constant allusions um, to other people's work. The language is 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 a kind of. Well, I think I say in the review a kind of vigorous plain speech, but at the same time, it's got this kind of slightly archaic flavour. You know, it could almost be if you stripped out the contemporary references, like in the second part to Tottenham Court Road, you know, it could all, almost be something translated from the Middle Ages or something. Do you see my point? Well, and you, you mentioned David Jones before as well, and, and, and mm. uh, Bunting makes similar use of, of Welsh myth and kind of medieval myth, doesn't he? Yes, I mean, there is a, there is a certain amount of historical weave in the poem, and uh, he uses, well, from the Welsh, he uses, I mean, he uses a lot of the elaborate Welsh metrics and the, the, the very complicated uh, elaborate system of sound patternings and consonant patternings and yet at the same time it's 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 essentially very straightforward you know it's not full of uh, arcane terminology or anything it's um, the, the language is essentially uh, straightforward there are some there are the occasional dialect words like I point out in the in the piece, there are there are the occasional technical terms like a, a rebate, which is a type of woodsman's chisel, you know, brag, sweet tenor bull, descant on Rorthy's madrigal, each pebble its part for the fell's late spring, dance tiptoe bull, black against May, ridiculous and lovely, chase hurdling shadows morning into noon. May on the bull's hide and through the dale furrows filled with may, paving the slow worm's way. What an extraordinary opening. <laughs> and one of the things that you say, you talked briefly about translation there. There's, you quote Kenneth Cox saying that the sort of the long practice of a translator, the persistent testing of every word. And one of the things well, you I do think that's in, interesting. in yeah. the pieces you exhume, I think one of the, things, the great things about the, 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 the end of your piece, you start exhuming hidden, buried meanings within all sorts of words within it. Because what you just read out then was characteristic i think of it's sort of monosyllabic it was it was sort of simple hearty words almost but they That's carry the with them yeah and they carry with them a quite wide valence of meaning they don't they because they, they absolutely have, and that absolutely the, and is that the beauty do you think the sort of slightly buried beauty well there's that I mean, it was both i mean at the you know at the surface level it's absolutely self-explanatory you know the difficulties in brick flats are from the, the you know what filmmakers will call jump cuts which all the modernists do where they they cut out connecting material so they they make abrupt transitions suddenly so any difficulty in the poem comes essentially from the abrupt transitions and from the handful of historical allusions to you know to eric bloodaxe and to alexander alexander's journey to the edge of the known world and that kind of thing, but 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 the language itself is essentially very vigorous Anglo-Saxon word hoard English, and at the same time, those all those 
words, even those very simple words, have very rich histories. And, you know, scholars don't like um, etymologies and roots because they're unstable a lot of the time. You know, when you look up a word in the dictionary, you look up its etymology, it says etymology unknown, or it says possibly from this or possibly from that. They're a little bit unstable, and so scholars tend to be a bit shy of them. But writers, and particularly poets, are intensely aware of, I think, of um, a writer as uh, astonishingly well-read in the history of English poetry as Bunting was. So, yeah, so that's why I mentioned that. I didn't mean to be unfair to, to you know, because if you did that to the whole, to, 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 to Don Cher, you know, because he's, he doesn't do that at all. Um, he doesn't touch on the etymologies at all of work. But they do feed into the poem and, and, and they do have remarkable things to, to say about the poem. But, but at the same time, of course, if you did that, if you went through the whole poem doing that, he'd have 2,000 pages of critical apparatus. It would, yeah. it would never. Well, well, well yeah. I, I know that you didn't necessarily accept the premise that, that he needs rescuing. I would say that uh, um, both your piece and the way you've talked about him now, if he did, if Basil Bunting did need rescuing, uh, I think you've done a very good job of rescuing him. And um, we're very right. grateful well, to be doing it. Very, I would be very happy to contribute to that because, I mean, he's a marvellous poet, as, as I'm sure you both agree now. So if you're now, I'm sure you're now reading avidly brick flats. We are, <laughs> well, we, we are going back to it. Mark Hutton, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Take care. Bye. Okay feeling sometimes people who are experts in, in particular poets, they, they feel very protective of them. So when yeah. you say well, Basil Bunting, I wonder whether he has quite the reach that he once did. There's almost a sort it's of... It's a provocation. Yeah. The, what I loved about the piece was it makes you want to read Big Flats. Well, and insofar as we can talk about him needing rescuing or not needing rescuing, I mean, it's the second big Basil Bunting book that we've had in recent years, the other one being um, Richard Burton's yeah. biography that, that was reviewed in the TLS. And I would urge people to go back and find Paul Batchelor's review of that of that book as well and read it alongside Mark Hutchinson's because it's such an interesting review and I think in answering in attempting to answering that question if there is a question of you know why has this uh, wonderful modernist work been been so neglected um, they'll certainly find lots of things to be thinking about there. I mean, his his biography is fascinating. He's a he's a troubled and troubling figure religiously, sexually. And also this um, argument with, I mean, the the, the, the the strange relationship with, with Elliot. I mean, we didn't get a chance to talk with Mark about it, but it's notable that Elliot dies in January 1965. Mm. And in January 1965, he begins writing his masterpiece. Mm. And and also there is also that sense that when when um, Basil Bunting came to write Brig Flats, he was at a real juncture in his life. He was It was sort of like a last-ditch attempt at, at some greatness because I think he had, he'd, he'd just left the Times. I don't know whether he'd left or been fired I think there's some greyness there and he was facing poverty I think his marriage was his second marriage I think was on the rock so you know there's a real sense of life pushing one to greatness and I wonder whether that's often a, it's not time to discuss that but I wonder if that's often the, case, the context of, of yeah. great things maybe those moments of stress and crisis which sort of produce things like that we should go from one underappreciated poet to another unappreciated only in her own lifetime Emily Dickinson she was born in 1830 and lived most of her life in seclusion in Amherst, Massachusetts, writing around 2,000 poems, the vast majority of which went unpublished. After her death in 1886, her correspondent and literary critic Thomas Wentworth Higginson was 
largely responsible for bringing her writing to the attention of the public. She had written to him in 1862 in one of the most justly famous literary letters where she inquired about his view of her work in which she said, Are you too deeply occupied to say if my verse is alive? The mind is too near itself. It cannot see distinctly and I have none to ask. Should you think it breathed and you had the leisure to tell me I should feel quick gratitude? And the voice of the poet is unmistakably present there. The rhythmic punctuation of the dashes in her sentence, the association of poetry with breath, which is picked up by the reference to quick or living gratitude and the conceptual brilliance of the mind's proximity to itself. Higginson and Dickinson corresponded for the remainder of her life, but he did not press her to publish. He said that the publication of her poems in 1890 led to the sudden rise of Emily Dickinson into a posthumous fame only more accentuated by the utterly recluse character of her life. And that image has achieved the status of legend. When one thinks of Dickinson, one imagines her in splendid isolation, crafting minutely brilliant poems about death, telling all the truth, as she put it, but telling it slant. A new collection of these poems has now been published, Emily Dickinson's poems, As She Preserved Them, edited by Christan Miller. The idea is that this presents the order of work as Dickinson wished to curate it for posterity. Fiona Green has reviewed the book and joins Thea and me now. Hi, Fiona. Hello, hi. We might start with explaining how these poems have been ordered and how that differs from previous collections. What's the purpose of this particular one? The idea behind the arrangement of this collection is uh, that Dickinson did imagine her poems surviving her and that she thought also about how they might be put into circulation. So the emphasis is on Dickinson's own methods of copying and circulating and preserving her work. Perhaps I should say a bit about how the poems were first discovered. You may know it was Dickinson's sister, Vinnie, Lavinia, who found the poems shortly after Dickinson's death. She found a locked box containing, as she said, 700 wonderful poems carefully copied. Carefully copied poems had been made into books, little booklets stitched together, um, bound together with string. And those, those booklets, um, scholars now call them fascicles, come first in Christian Miller's edition of the verse. So she puts the fascicles first, and then she groups together the poems that Dickinson copied onto unbound sheets and others that seem uh, still to be in a state of a sort of unfinished draft. So those fascicles, were they, because there's an interesting distinction, maybe or maybe not, between writing for posterity and writing for posthumous publication. Was she, was she collecting them because she knew her sister would find them and then do something with them, or was she collecting collect them in that way because that's just the order she wanted them to, to remain? I think the simple answer is that we don't know why she collected them in that way, why she, why she copied them out, and why she didn't try to publish them herself, because, after all, the, the puzzle of this book is that Dickinson's retaining her poems in this careful way in those bound booklets is a signal that she wanted to be she wanted them to be preserved and to be known. Why didn't she get them into print herself? Because presumably Higginson would have been... I mean, he was a literary critic, he was, he was a man of letters, and he, she was corresponding with him. Presumably yeah. he could have... And he never really seemed to push her on it either. No, though, he? He, he didn't actually press her to publish. And in fact, sometimes she used Higginson as a sort of shield against publication. So when others tried to press her to publish, she wrote to, uh, she wrote to Higginson to kind of, kind of defend her from that, uh, from that fate. But... Um, there, there are a number of reasons why she might not have um, published, wanted to publish in her own lifetime. Some scholars have argued that 
her not publishing is a kind of act of resistance to the norms of print culture, as though she knew that editors would get her wrong, if you like, that in tidying up her sort of wayward manuscripts and in making decisions over things like capital letters or over punctuation, things that you can leave undecided in a manuscript, that a, a printed text would corrupt the poetry. Oddly, in, in the service of making it perfect, it would, it would um, get it wrong. I suppose the other thing to say is that Dickinson didn't publish, but as we've mentioned, she did disseminate her poems, especially by way of letters. And there's something wonderfully bold and daring, isn't there, about that, that letter to Higginson demanding his attention to her, to her verse. It's a fantastic. I mean, it, it's a. I've got an awful lot of uh, fondness for for, for Dickinson. Um, Thea, do you? Does where, where does she? What does she mean to you? Anything or? Yes, I mean she she does. I I certainly studied her as well. I suppose I worry sometimes about the way in which she's taken up by people to sort of fit in with their argument. So. I suppose most most famously the feminist argument, and then I worry about her romantic image and the romanticization of this kind of morose hermit figure, which I remember when I first read her poems, thinking that how you know how that does tend to obfuscate the more outspoken or subversive elements of her verse and and the humorous ones and the self ironizing aspects, which I think are really important to the work, especially in I'm nobody, who are you? Do you, do you remember that one? Yeah. Where she goes, are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell. They'll, uh, they'd advertise, you know. So I mean, I think I think I, I worry about getting a, a, a broad picture of of the the poet rather than her being sort of. Is that fair? Do you think too, that the romantic image of her sort of writing on chocolate wrappers and and being the sort of the the, the, the hermit of Amherst? Do you think that has distracted from her poems um, overall? It's a really good question, actually. Um, has it distracted from the poems? I guess it depends what you think the poems are. And one of the strongest claims, one of the most interesting claims that Chris Miller makes in this new edition is that, as she puts it, Dickinson's poems are separable from their handwritten artefacts. So what she means by that is that she's not going to give too much attention to the physical properties of the manuscripts. And in, in that way, she's pushing back, actually, against quite a powerful trend in Dickinson's scholarship, which attends very, very closely to visual minutiae, to the particulars of the manuscripts, and who, who've looked at things like blots and smudges and watermarks and so on, and, and who've opened up all those material features of the poetry to interpretation, right down to, as you say, the chocolate wrappers, the scrap papers on which Dickinson sometimes drafted her poems. So the question is, and it's one that applies to verse other than Dickinson's too, is whether a poem is an act of the mind... Um, a sort of tune in the ear that just happens to be put across on paper, but whose essential properties are are separate from that written form. And I think that's what Chris Miller is suggesting. Or whether a poem is essentially an act of writing, an act of inscription, a a material object, all of whose visual details are, are vital to its meaning. So, in other words, should we attend to those accidents of transmission... Or are they just accidents, um, distractions, as, as we began by saying, distractions from the substance uh, of the poetry? That's so interesting. Uh, Dickinson had the, the sort of botanical precision. You quote in the piece of a mushroom described as vegetation's juggler, the germ of an alibi. And she was actually rather well known for her for her love of nature. And it's odd that she's become known as a poet of death and, 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 and a kind of fixation on, on death. But actually there's an argument for her as a po- poet of nature and life, isn't there? 
it's a strange thing. I've been reading Dickinson for many, many years, and it was a huge pleasure to read her all at once from start to finish when I was uh, reviewing this book. And when I read the poems from beginning to end, what struck me most was actually not those big abstractions, not the kind of thematic headings under which the earliest editors grouped the poems. What struck me most was that Dickinson is a kind of a weird kind of reader. She's a reader of the natural world. She's a reader of other poets, especially Shakespeare. She's a passionate and and troubled reader of the Bible uh, and of theology. And that she's a very, very intrepid and canny and sceptical reader. And what she's most sceptical about is that verbal medium to which her poems themselves are also confined. So insofar as she is a poet of life, it's of a kind of mortal faulty sort of life, that earthly condition in which we all live, and that uh, kind of imperfect language, which is our only means of publishing or sharing thought. That's a, a wonderful way to describe her, I, I think, and, and her work, Fiona. Thank you so much for doing the piece, and thank you very much for joining us now. Thank you. It's easier to be warmer towards Emily Dickinson than Basil Bunting for you me. You find? Why yeah. is that? I don't know. I, I just, I, I mean, I remember reading, I think her poems, I and mean, this is true, I think, of, of Big Flats, but when you read Emily Dickinson, you read sort of two paragraph poems, mm-hmm. two stanza poems, and everything is so dense and precise and kind of carefully done. Mm. And I think, as, as Fiona was saying, has that sort of slight sort of whiff of mortality around. It's very wry and pointed and clever. And the notion of a woman in the 19th century in America producing that cut off from the world, and maybe this is me being romantic, but there's just something so brilliant about that. And I think when, when you read it, it, it sort of it comes off the page. Mm. There's something very distinct about the way, because, you know, she um, she's well known for having done, she used to put together little posies yeah. and attach the poems to them. There's this strange kind of, there's something very modern about that. I'm not quite sure what it is, but just the idea of it being this this package that is is shared in that way. Yeah, exactly. That I, I, she would then send these on to her friends. And I think the modernity of her is, 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 is interesting. And, mm. and the thing that, you know, when you read the poems, they could be written very, very recent. Mm. And yet she was so much of her time with, you know, the Civil War and... Yeah. And all of that. There's, it's yes, very rich. My memories are very hazy, I must admit. But this is this has definitely made me want to go. Actually, back the other day I looked at my bookshelf and I've got the complete work, the the previous collection, which is all of them, which are numbered. I, th- I think this review takes issue with how they. But yeah, were, it does. And so numbered. instead, they're they're titled by the their first but, line. But I remember they? reading them, and and you know you can like you pick it up, and, and yeah, it's extraordinary stuff. Right, that's almost all we have time for this week. Before we listen to the poems of Robert Conquest, read by him in 1960, they and I should thank, of course, David Horsepool. Mark Hutchinson and Fiona Green. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast reviewers, if you can too. We'll be back every week with highlights from the TLS and discussions on other cultural subjects. This week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we have discussed today, plus Ben Eastham on the brand of modern contrarianism, Gwendolyn Riley on the new Margaret Drabble, Peter Maber on William Kentridge's last exhibition, and Ferdy Mount on the laconic Ken Clark. You can visit our website, the-tls.co.uk, to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions, and do come back daily to the site for new original pieces from TLS writers, including Mary Beard, the beard, on her hatred for Marcus Aurelius. I've spoken to her about that before. She really does genuinely hate Marcus Aurelius. She thinks he's a horrible old cliched bore. I think she might hate being called the beard as well. Well, we'll we should find out. I've now done it on the uh, on the podcast. The beard hates Marcus Aurelius is one conclusion you can draw safely. Julian Savulescu on the ethics of boxing. Edmund Gordon
and Angela Carter's biographer on the effect of social media on future biography, ah. which, if you remember, was a topic we broached last week's show. Yes, we did. And do listen. And I asked the guy who commissioned, "Oh, you listened to Thea and I talking about it on the show." And he was, you can't take credit, can no, you? He no, completely blank, he, looked, <laughs> he looked completely blankly at me. Uh, do sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook. To end the show, we're going to hear some poetry from Robert Conquest. Conquest, who died last year, is best known for his groundbreaking work as a historian. He wrote The Great Terror in 1968 and Harvest of Sorrow in 1986, exposing the genocidal horrors of Stalin, much to the horror of left-wing intellectuals seeking to shut their eyes to the brutality going on in Russia. But Conquest was also a poet of note, connected to the post-war movement and a regular correspondent with Philip Larkin and Donald Davey. His widow is in the process of editing a complete poems to be published in the next couple of years. We shall now hear one of his poems, which Conquest himself read in 1960, The Rope Be Venus. We hope you enjoy it and return to us on Tearless Voices next week for more literary talk. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. The Rope Be Venus. Life pours out images, the accidental at once deleted when the purging mind detects their resonance as inessential. Yet these may leave some fruitful trace behind. Thus, on this painted mirror is projected the shield that rendered safe the Gorgon's head, a travesty. Yet even as reflected, the young face seems to strike us, if not dead, at least into an instantaneous winter which life and reason can do nothing with, freezing the watcher and the painting into a single immobility of myth. But underneath the pigment's changeless weather, the artist only wanted to devise a posture that could show him altogether face, shoulders, waist, delectable smooth thighs. So with the faulty image as a start, we come at length to analyze and name the luminous darkness in the depths of art. The timelessness that holds us is the same as that of the transcendent sexual glance, and art grows brilliant in the light it sheds, direct or not, on the inhabitants of our imaginations and our beds. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hold up. 